I was thinking about it partly because I preached on it yesterday. Uh, because it just happened that the uh, in the um, in the Episcopal uh, lectionary, the, the, the account of passages of scripture that you read, that the story of David and Bathsheba is what we've been reading, and thus uh, Psalm 51 um, came up with that uh, for, for yesterday. Uh, and uh, the usual critical view um, is that David didn't write Psalm 51, in fact, David probably didn't write any psalms at all. Sorry if that's bad news. Uh, <laughs> uh, but it makes a lot of sense. Because um, how, how could David be that great killer but also be sort of Orin <laughs> It's kind of a bit of a mystery. Um, but it's all we ought to say that. But then the, the heading of the psalm has got this thing where it says to the leader of Psalm of David when, he, when the prophet Nathan came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So what do you do with that? Um, and the best theory, if you reckon that David didn't write the psalm, uh, is that the headings like that aren't so much uh, statements about authorship as, um, in fact, something like lectionary notes. Uh, in other words, they're saying, if you read this story, um, that story about... David and Bathsheba and Uriah, uh, and you read this psalm in association with each other, and likewise with the other about a dozen long uh, psalms that have got long headings like that that talk, talk about insects and David's life. Uh, if you read this psalm and that uh, story alongside each other, you'll find they throw light on each other. And uh, as when uh, in the lectionary uh, today, uh, we, well, yesterday we didn't read, we, didn't, we weren't saying, uh, by virtue of putting some passages together, we had Ephesians 4 and a bit of Jesus saying, I'm bread of life. We weren't saying those all came from the same context, but we were saying, if you read those in relation to each other, you'll find that they, the sparks fly, that you discover things, that they feel light on each other. And that that's actually what the heading of the psalm is doing. Um, the trouble is, if that's so, it still, it, it then leaves you with, um, the questions about the disparity between the psalm um, and the story. In other words, it doesn't look as if it's a very good parallel. Uh, when the psalm says, uh, against you, you alone have I sinned, um, well, if David says that to me and I'm God in connection with the story of Samuel, then I cut him around the ears. In line with what one of you said about, is it you, about sinning against uh, what he really loyal to Yahweh. Um, well, I mean, it could easily be that that commitment of David to Yahweh was a kind of avoidance mechanism. Uh, claiming I've sinned against you was actually avoiding the people against whom he's really sinned. Um, and furthermore, I realized thinking about it at the weekend, which I hadn't quite sort of seen before, it looks like most of the things in this psalm don't actually get granted. I mean, created me a clean heart, O oh God. As that one can tell from the story, God doesn't do that. Um, then I cast me away from your presence, put a new and right spirit within me. Doesn't look as if it happens. And so the conclusion I've come to is that um, if David if David wrote this psalm, then um, then God thought this is a great psalm. I'm going to have it in my book. Um, but, Dave, but nevertheless, David, this is no psalm for you. 
And, and there's a massive irony uh, between the heading, the occasion when David prayed it, um, and uh, the content of the prayer. Um, and if David didn't write it, and it's lecturing note, then the same thing applies. That what you discover by putting the psalm and the passage and the story together are actually as much things about disparity, things that don't fit, which make you think, as they are things that fit. Um, and the same would be true actually with regard to Solomon. Um, psalm 72 is the one psalm where it says at the top of Solomon. Now one of the reasons for uh, reckoning that, for questioning the, the, the notion that David wrote all these psalms is that the expressions used when it says a psalm of David, or in this case of Solomon, isn't a Hebrew, the Hebrew equivalent of a genitive, which for the, the initiated is a construct. But think of that as like a genitive um, in Greek. And if you've never heard of a genitive, sorry, ask me afterwards. <laughs> well, oh, it's like of oh, in English, isn't it? It's a genitive. But the, the, the Hebrew expression um, the equivalent of the of here is not the genitive or the construct, it's the Hebrew preposition la, uh, which looks like that in funny language, or looks like that in our funny language. Um, it's la David or le shaloma. Uh, and la means, um, usually means something like to uh, or for. Um, <coughs> It isn't the um, it, is, it isn't the, the, the expression you'd normally use to indicate authorship, um, and so these psalms, and it would make sense if one thought of these psalms as for David, for Solomon, because David, even apart from whether or not he's got spirituality, he's too busy going around fighting battles and things like that to be uh, also writing psalms. He's got other things to do. The, the president doesn't write his own psalms; he gets a speechwriter to write them for him. Um, and so it would be the Levites who wrote the Psalms, as, as sometimes they appear in that way in the um, So one could imagine uh, that somebody would write a Psalm for David or for Solomon, rather than it being David or Solomon actually writing them. But again, that's that's sort of immaterial. Um, in some, there's some link between Psalm 72 and Solomon. But when you read Psalm 72, again, a massive irony emerges. Give the king your justice, O God, your righteousness to the king's son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. May the mountains yield prosperity for the hills and the hill, for the people of the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the needy, crush the oppressor. And so on it goes. Solomon, this is. Solomon is the guy who arranged conscript gangs to build the temple. Solomon is the guy who built all these magnificent uh, buildings off the backs of ordinary people. Um, somebody in their posting asked whether David actually was quite was still an illustration of the warnings of kingship that Samuel gave back in 1 Samuel 8 and yeah, David was and so was Solomon and so were all the kings that followed and so whether Psalm 72 was written by Solomon or written for Solomon or, or something there's a massive irony when you set Psalm 72 alongside Solomon as there is a massive irony when you said Psalm, Psalm 51 uh, alongside David's story. Do we know who put the labels on the Psalms? 
Um, who it's to or for? No, no, but they, they, they are just as much part of the biblical text as, as the psalm itself. Um, uh, and so, so that when, for instance, the New English Bible translation and the uh, Good News Bible both um, omit them, they are omitting part of the text. Uh, but on the other hand, they are... Um, what the, the Qumran version of the Psalter and the Septuagint, the Greek translation version of the Psalter, have got more headings like that than the um, Hebrew text has got. And in some cases, one can certainly tell that the, that the headings look as if they're telling you about a way in which the psalm was used in worship, but not about when it was originally written. So the, a fair amount of circumstantial evidence suggests that the headings are later than the psalms themselves. Um, but as I say, that doesn't alter the fact that they are part of the text. Um, and so, in some way, as part of the Word of God, as part of Scripture, uh, one needs a way of being able to see what, how, how, they would, how, would, how they would be functioning as Word of God for us. Well, page uh, 54, Prophecy in 1 and 2 Kings. Um, and in looking at this then, I am um, both looking at a significant theme out of Kings, which is the book we come to next after Samuel, uh, but also doing something that's of some significance by way of background to when we come to the, as it were, the prophets with a big P. Um, though that reminds me of a question that arose in a number of the postings, um, which I think has implications something like this. When we think of the prophets, we think of a rather select number of people. We think of those 15 guys who've got the books named after them. And then two or three people like Elijah and Elisha, their prophets are a series of extraordinary, great uh, men of God, true servants of Yahweh. But some of you were clearly uh, more than slightly surprised to find that there were 400 prophets hanging about um, uh, with... Um, my car in 1 Kings 22. Um, is it 400? Is it 1 Kings 22? Well, it's thereabouts. You know roughly what I'm talking about, don't you? Yes, 1 Kings 22 is there. Where are the 400 of them? I can't see now. But anyway, there were a lot. <laughs> Sorry, somebody know what the right number is? 400. 400. I'm okay, am I? Oh. <laughs> uh, math isn't my strong point today. Um, <laughs> And so, so there were a vast number of them, and they were bad guys, not good guys, right? Uh, and it's it's really uh, good for us to, to recognise that when we're talking about prophets, we are talking about a widespread phenomenon. Uh, it's not just a phenomenon in Israel. There are prophets amongst other peoples, uh, as there are all sorts of prophets in various contexts today. I'm not, by the way, going to talk about, several people want to talk about prophecy today, and I'm not going to talk about that today, but we'll talk about it towards the end of the uh, course. Um, prophecy is not a phenomenon that's limited to uh, Israelite faith, as phenomena, or, or to Christian faith, as phenomena like speaking in tongues are not limited, or miracle working for that matter, um, are not limited to Christian faith. The point, uh, what's Paul point Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 12 is that you can be moved in all sorts of directions 
as it were, with your spiritual um, gifts. Uh, but the question is, is the way in which you're moved, is this spiritual gift something that makes Jesus Lord? Uh, and the equivalent Old Testament uh, question then is not whether there are gifts being exercised, not whether there are prophets around, but are these prophets who are making, are these prophets people who are making Yahweh Lord? Um, so your understanding, your definition of prophets needs, needs to be to some extent phenomenological. It's about all sorts of varieties of people that there are. And, and often it's, it's hard for you to know who are true prophets and who are false prophets. The, the Septuagint kindly translates the word um, Narvi, the word prophet, uh, in Jeremiah, when it's referring to uh, false prophets, it, refer, it, it translates it by the word pseudo-prophetes, false prophet. That makes life easier. Um, but unfortunately, or fortunately, um, the Hebrew text doesn't do that. It just says prophet. Hananiah, who's a bad guy, is just as much a prophet as Jeremiah, who's a good guy. Um, there are lots of prophets around. Um, there are ancient New Eastern prophets in the book called Ancient New Eastern Texts, if you buy Pritchard, you can find in the library, you can find examples of ancient Near Eastern prophecies um, of prophets who will give the king advice in connection with battle in a similar way to the way in which the king seeks advice in battle in that passage in 1 Kings 22. Um, they will encourage, they will tell him that Ishtar, his, his favourite goddess, Ishtar, will be with him. She'll protect him. Um, the, the, the prophet will say, do not fear for Ishtar is with you. Just the same as an Israelite prophet would say, do not fear because Yahweh is with you. The, the phenomenon is similar. The question is, um, whose glory uh, is the prophet uh, speaking to Yahweh? Um, who does, whom does the prophet honor uh, as, as God? Yeah? If you come to a biotheistic approach that you only believe there is one God, period, how can you then say there are these other prophets, but these other gods, if these gods didn't exist, are these people making this stuff up? Or, I mean, I'm just trying to understand yeah. the society. Well, the, the, the Old Testament, and maybe the New Testament, and, uh, well, I'll come back to the New Testament in a minute, but certainly the Old Testament um, doesn't assume that these gods don't exist. It assumes that they are uh, underlings. There's only one God who really deserves the, the, the word God with the word God with a capital G. But all these other gods, uh, it's not these other gods don't exist. It's they, they don't count for much. Um, and, yeah. Uh, to put it another way, they are the entities that the New Testament refers to as principalities and powers, and so on. Lots of entities that are under God, under God with big G, supposed to serve God with big G, but don't always do so. Um, and, that, uh, and so that provides another illustration. I did talk about monotheism and monoyakism tonight. No, that was Pentateuch. You're nodding because you're in Pentateuch. <laughs> <laughs> um, when in doubt, blame the Greeks. You know that. <laughs> you, know, you know that, don't you? Um, and monotheism is another of those Greek words, another of those Greek divine expressions. Uh, and that is uh, a sign that the question that the word monotheism is, is a worthy answer to is a Greek kind of question. It's an important principle in Greek thinking that there should be a principle of unity behind all reality. 
there should be a monarch, a monad, one thing, that the whole thing holds together. And that's quite a good principle. It's quite a good idea, really. It's just not an idea that's around in the, in the Bible's culture. It's a European hang-up, not a Middle Eastern hang-up. Uh, the, the, the Bible is not concerned with the question how many gods there are. Greek thinking is concerned with the question how many gods are. The Bible isn't concerned with that question. It's concerned with a different question, namely, who is God? It's not that there is only one God that is its, that is its important affirmation. It's that Yahweh is the only God, which is an overlapping affirmation, but one which in the Old Testament thinking would be much more important, much more important than the question how many gods are there, is who is God? Um, and uh, the, the ugly word expression, mono kind of makes that point. That is, Yahweh is the only God with a big G, the only God who really counts um, as far as the Old Testament is concerned. And that's true from the beginning right through to the end. So there is no development towards monotheism in the Old Testament because the question about monotheism belongs in a different sort of framework for thinking um, from uh, the, the question that the Old Testament uh, is concerned with. Mm -hmm. Does the Bible, I'm, I'm assuming no, but does the Bible ever kind of talk about what the relationship between other than the fact that there are just other principalities and powers in, you know, heavenly realms. Is there any other about the relationship between these, like, well, are, they, are they demons? Do they belong in the kind of the bad side of the world, or like, how does that work? Well, no, no, because they're, they're not, demons, the Old Testament doesn't talk about demons. I'm talking about the whole Bible as a whole. You're but, talking about the whole Bible as a whole. Uh, yes, okay. Uh, but pick a Jesus, you Oh, thanks. Okay. Well, that's very postmodern of me. Yeah, okay. <laughs> like the adversary of Job, would that be considered? Yeah, um, uh, that complicated again. Okay. Let, let, me, let me give you Psalm 82. Um, God has taken his place in the divine council. Um, that's a paraphrase, because it's got the word gods. Uh, I'm pretty sure. Oh, no, it's just the word God. God. Um, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. Now there is this uh, kind of paradoxical usage. Of it, 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 the word gods with a small g and an s at the end is the same as the word god with a big g mm -hmm. and no s at the end. You can <coughs> nearly always tell the difference because the word god, the word, this word Elohim, when it means god, um, has a singular verb of it. Whereas when it means gods, uh, it's not a plural verb. Uh, plural verb. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? This is what the gods are supposed to do. You see, the gods are supposed to be Yahweh's agents in ruling the world in a proper way. Give justice to the weak and the orphan. Maintain the right of the lowly and the destitute. And that, Juxtaposing this with Psalm 72 now is interesting because the God's job is the same as the king's job. The God's job uh, is to make sure that in Moab and uh, Ammon and Egypt and all that kind of place, the, the territories that they own control of, they are supposed to make sure that there's morality and social justice and so on there. Rescue the weak and the needy, deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk around in the darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I say... You are gods, children of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, you shall die like mortals and fall like any prince. 
Rise up, O God, judge the earth, for all the nations belong to you. Now that gives you an, an illustration of the, 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 the assumed relationship between God with the big G and the God with the big G, who are supposed to be the upwards agents of ruling the nations, um, but are um, not very good about the way they do so. And that fits with New Testament ways of talking about principalities and powers. Demons operate at another level. They're more trivial characters than principalities and powers, aren't they? Um, and the Old Testament doesn't talk about demons. Uh, I think it's no coincidence that the other nations around talked a lot about demons, uh, and the Old Testament seems to avoid giving any kind of impression that there are loads of characters like that that you have to worry about who might have, might be able to, uh, might represent the other side, as you put it, um, might be, as if, as if there was a kingdom of evil that was almost as powerful as the kingdom of God. It doesn't want to think of those things. The Israelites supposed to relate to these other gods then? I'm sorry? How would the Israelites be expected to relate to these Ignore other them. Just completely? Yeah, because they have nothing to do with them. Okay. Uh, partly because, I mean, literally, I'm, there's a lot of connecting of dots in order to make a big picture thing. But, but I'm assuming these are the same sort of characters as Daniel talks about when he talks about the leaders of the nations who are supernatural figures. Uh, and, uh, and Deuteronomy that talks about God allocating the different nations to the sons of God. But Yahweh, Israel is Yahweh's own portion, you see. So, so Chemosh, the god of the Moabites, the Moabites think of as God, is in Israelite thinking the under God who is in charge of the Moabites on <coughs> Yahweh's behalf. But the Israelites don't need to relate to Chemosh, and if they do start relating to Chemosh, then they're being unfaithful to Yahweh. Well, it's about Baal. Baal. Oh, again, it gets more complicated then. <laughs> Um, I don't know whether Baal fits. The Old Testament doesn't bring Baal into that kind of uh, connection, I don't think. Um, unless they would think. I suppose it might think of Baal as the Canaanite. Yeah, it might, but again, again there's a lot of dot connecting here. Um, you might think of Baal as the, the equivalent of Chemosh of the Moabites, Baal of the Canaanites. The, the, the one who is the lord of the Canaanites, who in theory ought to be ruling the Canaanites on God's behalf, but actually is colluding with the Canaanites in order to do the opposite. Um, yeah. So they would still view them as kind of part of God's council, but even the, the big G's council, but not. Baal is in God's council. That's a weird thought. Wait, I'm sorry, is that the yeah. kind of connection? That's kind of all Yeah, that's what I said. I suppose so. I don't want to go into print about it yet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> and there ain't going to be a fourth volume. Uh, well, okay. Prophecy in one of two kings. Page 54. <coughs> um, and, I want, and I'm structuring what I'm going to say, what I'm saying around uh, three terms that the books of kings use to describe a prophet. Uh, the first is the expression man of God. Now we know what a man of God is. It's somebody who's really holy. I just part time every morning. Uh, you know, lives in uh, dependency upon God. Whatnot. Not so much. A man of God in, in 1 and 2 Kings is, as I put it, a somewhat austere and frightening kind of figure with mysterious powers. Somebody who utters words of fearful significance and somebody whose words are followed by signs that can be both destructive and constructive. 
Uh, it's, he's a man of God, not in other words, then that's, that's not a description of his own spiritual life, uh, but it's an indication that mysterious powers of God operate through him. And you can see something in the first of those stories in 1, in 1 Kings 13, which you all wanted me to sort out, um, and which I shall fail to sort out, uh, but I'll try. Um, here is a man of God who comes with an extraordinary declaration uh, to King Jeroboam, who has set up um, an alternative form of worship in Bethel to the form of worship in Jerusalem. Remember, David has um, uh, set up Jerusalem as the sanctuary for the whole kingdom. Um, Solomon has built the temple there. But now Jeroboam has, divided, has taken off most of the uh, Davidic Solomonic kingdom in order to bring into being uh, an independent nation in the north. Um, and he needs to do the same thing that David had done in establishing Jerusalem as not only his capital, uh, but as his uh, religious center. Uh, it's no good the Israelites in the north traipsing off down to Jerusalem in order to worship Yahweh. That won't do, will it? Um, and so uh, Jeroboam um, sets up uh, worship centers uh, in, the, in, in the northern kingdom. Uh, one of which is at, uh, one at Dan in the far north and one at Bethel in the far south of his kingdom. Uh, so it's not far north of Jerusalem. Uh, while Jeroboam is uh, involved in leading worship there uh, in Bethel, which is a suspicious act in itself because kings weren't uh, supposed to be leading worship. Um, sometimes David and Solomon kings did so in some shape or form, um, probably on the basis of being the, a, a priest after the order of Melchizedek uh, in Genesis, who was the guy who was both king and priest of Jerusalem. So the king of Jerusalem couldn't operate as a priest uh, in accordance with what the Torah had got to say because the king didn't belong to the clan of Levi, the tribe of Levi. But because, insofar as he was the successor of Melchizedek, who had been both king and priest in Jerusalem, uh, he could maybe uh, exercise, well, he, looks like he did, exercise some priestly uh, um, roles in Jerusalem uh, on, that, on that basis. But he couldn't, take, he couldn't be involved in the leading of regular worship. Uh, he was Jeroboam offering incense in the way that the Levitical priest would uh, at this sanctuary that he himself has established. And the, that David story about wanting to build a house itself, one thing that, that is doing is uh, making clear that the temple was not built on David's authority. Maybe David's idea but it was something that, um, that Yahweh authorized Jeroboam to set up his religious show just on the basis of um, his own desire, his own so-so. Along then comes uh, this man of God who declares that a moment will come when this uh, altar is destroyed, uh, when uh, a son born to the house of David, Josiah by name, will sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who offer incense on you, and human bones shall be burned on you in order thoroughly to desecrate this altar. Um, and he says a few more things. And the king um, stretches out his hand 
uh, from the altar saying, seize him, as you would. Um, but when he did that, his hand withered so that he couldn't pull it back to himself. Uh, which drives him to pray, uh, to ask this man of God to pray for him, uh, which the man of God does, um, and his hand is restored. Um, you can see there the mysterious power of this man of God on the basis of God working through him. Uh, and in light of the significance of his ministry at Bethel at this crucial moment, then the aftermath in the, story, in the rest of the story um, is disturbing. There's an old prophet at Bethel. Now, um, the implication presumably is that this prophet of Bethel, like the prophet of Bethel later on who confronts Amos, whose story we read the other day, um, is in favor of Jeroboam's uh, establishment at, at, at Bethel. Um, and uh, he comes and talks to that man of God and persuades the man of God to do the opposite to what God has told the man of God to do. Uh, and that leads up, uh, leads in due course to the man of God um, losing his life. Um, you want me to explain that away? I can't do it. Uh, it's designed to be a frightening story. It's, designed, it's like many of the stories in Old and New Testament that make you glad that you don't belong, uh, you don't live in Old or New Testament times. It was scary. The stakes were very high. I think that's the point in a number of these stories. Same is true, um, one or two people asked about the desire <coughs> and the covenant chest um, when the ark is being carried up to Jerusalem. Um, the stakes are high. The electricity is very powerful uh, at these moments. Um, 1 Kings chapter 17 verse 18 Uh, tellingly, uh, the uh, uh, the the son of a woman who has been kind to Elijah um, has more or less died, has done, uh, and she says to Elijah, "What have you against me, O man of God?" Now her, her conviction that it's Elijah's power that has made this child die links with uh, her addressing him as man of God. She, she knows, she knew already that Elijah was somebody who embodied supernatural power. But it's significant that it's at this point when this terrible thing has happened that she addresses him as man of God. Something similar is true about the stories at the beginning of 2 Kings chapter 1. Uh, which, if I'd asked you to read them, you would have wanted me to explain these away to you. But I didn't, so you didn't. Did I? Didn't, didn't I read these, did you? No, right. Uh, where uh, the, the king um, of Israel um, is sick. Uh, and sends to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron, the former Baal, in, uh, under which name Baal is worshipped in Ekron. Uh, of course, the king of Israel has got no business going inquiring about the Baal of such things. Um, 
and uh, Elijah is sent by Yahweh's angel to go and sow so. Um, so uh, the king decides to have Elijah arrested. The king sent him a captain of fifty with his a captain of fifty with his fifty men. He went up to Elijah, who was sitting on the top of a, of a hill, and said to him, "O man of God, the king says, come down." But Elijah answered the man, the captain of fifty, "If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. Fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. In other words, if Elijah was able to have been able to say, "Your statement deconstructs." then that's what he would have said. <laughs> because if Elijah is a man of God, you don't tell the man of God um, to come down. Um, and these uh, command kings and commanders are so stupid that the king then sends another captain of 50 with his 50, and he goes up and says, O oh, man of God, this is the king's order, come down quickly. And Elijah says, If I'm a man of God, let fire come down, and the fire of God comes down. And then the king gets it again. How stupid are these people? <laughs> In the stories of Elisha, um, the expression man of God comes a number of um, times. Um, Elisha is the holy man of God who passes uh, by the wealthy woman in Shunem and she uh, makes provision for him. Uh, in the story of Naaman uh, that follows, um, Elisha, the man of God, is the person who's in a position to intervene uh, and make it possible for uh, Naaman, uh, the guy with skin disease, to be healed. You know it's not leprosy. I need to tell you that. You don't know it's not leprosy. You know it's not leprosy. You look blank at me. You're all asleep. You look on how on how I am. When the Bible talks about leprosy, it doesn't mean the kind of distorting bone um, rotting disease that we are familiar with. Leprosy um, in in older English and in uh, Latin and Greek, a leprosy referred to um, a skin disease, um, and um, pretty well universally, when the when the Bible talks about leprosy, it's referring to a kind of skin disease. That the kind that Miriam became on Miriam, and significantly, um, Aaron pr- uh, pr- says to Moses, "Don't, don't let her become um, uh, like like a dead person, like a fetus that's um, been stillborn. That's all kind of uh, uh, it's the skin has all been eaten away." Uh, and the thing about leprosy, the reason why it was a, um, a thing to be feared and a thing that made you um, taboo was the death likeness. It looked as if your whole your body was falling apart. It looks as if you were corp- your corpse like you were like somebody who'd been stillborn. Um, so it wasn't um, a painful disease and it wasn't its problem wasn't exactly it was an illness. It was that the death like nature of it made it something that, at least as far as Israel was concerned, meant you couldn't go into God's presence because <coughs> Because death and God's presence are in contravention to each other. Uh, Elisha, Elisha, as the man of God, is able to uh, to tell men and how to how uh, to find cleansing uh, from his skin disease. Uh, 
Elisha as the man of God is in a position in chapter 7 to declare um, that the siege is going to be raised um, the next day. In that context um, of chapter 6, there's the great uh, story uh, of um, Elisha and the Aramean king and Elisha's servant. Um, Elisha is able to know what the king uh, of Aram's battle plans are because he is a man of God. Um, uh, the, uh, this is somewhat frustrating for the king of Aram, um, who decides rather unwisely, like the, um, the commander at the beginning of the, of the book, uh, the best thing to do is to arrest this wretched uh, Elisha. Uh, so the king sends horses and chariots there and a great army. They came by night and surrounded the city. When an attendant of the man of God, this is chapter 6, verse 15, um, when an attendant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. <coughs> His servant said, Alas, master, what shall we do? Elisha comes out with this, the wonderful <coughs> statement, uh, Do not be afraid, for, um, for there are more with us than there are with them. Then Elisha said, <coughs> Yahweh, please open his eyes so that he may see. So Yahweh opened the eyes of the servant, and he saw the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Now, um, something like that is the background to um, that title for God, the Lord of Hosts, that you asked about at the beginning. That I was, um, uh, I was in, in reading the passage, I was replacing that conventional English phrase by the phrase Yahweh armies, which is more literally what the expression says. Um, where it says Lord of Hosts, Lord is in four capital letters, so you know that's the name Yahweh. I have explained that, haven't I? Hmm, I saw somebody almost nodding. Yes, that's good, okay. Um, so, so more literally, it says Yahweh of hosts. Hosts is the ordinary Hebrew word for armies. It's the word that you see on the back of a military truck um, in Israel. So it's Yahweh of armies. But according to the normal rules of Hebrew, you can't say Yahweh of armies. That is, you can't... You can't put a proper name like Yahweh before another noun in the construct genitive like that. Um, and and, and, and it's it more, according to normal rules of Hebrew, it's more natural then to take the, the word armies as an opposition to the name Yahweh. In other words, therefore, it means <coughs> Yahweh armies. That's why I was translating it that. That's why I was translating it that way. Um, and it presumably then suggests, well, no, so. Which armies is it referring to? Maybe it's referring to uh, Yahweh having all earthly armies under his control. But a story like this makes you think maybe it's referring to Yahweh to all the supernatural forces that Yahweh is in control of. The kind of characters with their horses and chariots who um, appear in this vision of Elisha. So the implication is that although only at that moment is the servant, servant enabled to see them. They're always there. You just can't see them. You, know, you, don't, you don't normally have the eyes to see them, but they're always there. 
those armies of Yahweh. Um, the, the expression Yahweh armies um, is in some way then expre expresses the fact that Yahweh has, has all uh, forces and power Perhaps of heaven and on earth um, at Yahweh's disposal. Um, well, I think that'll do with those man, man of God references. Uh, you can see how a man of God is a somewhat austere and frightening kind of figure with mysterious powers. One who utters words of fearful significance is followed by signs which can be both destructive and constructive. Compare then, underneath that list of references, the mysterious, unpredictable, and frightening, as well as consistent and reassuring and encouraging nature of the God of the prophets. So there are stories like the 2 Samuel 6 uh, story about Uzzah and the ark, and the 2 Samuel 24 story um, about the census and the catastrophe. Uh, over on, the, on one side, on the other side, there are stories like that appearance, um, that, that promise, word of promise of God's uh, with the covenant undertaking in 2 Samuel 7. Um, Compare Acts 5. What on earth is Acts 5? That's not Ananias and Sapphira. Oh, of course it is Ananias and Sapphira. Yeah. Ananias and Sapphira raising similar issues in the New Testament to the ones that 2 Samuel 6 and 24 raise uh, about the Old Testament. Somebody asked an interesting question about the 2 Samuel 24, oh, sorry, the, uh, the 2 Samuel 24 passage about the census um, of the catastrophe along the lines of. Uh, how, how did they know when there was a catastrophe that, uh, that God had caused it? Um, and I think the story, in, in a way, give, give, and, 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 and can we, and how could we know when a catastrophe happens that God has caused it? <coughs> the way the story works, well, it reshapes the question, but I think in a way it answers it. That is, it's not that there's a catastrophe, and then David discovers that he's taken the, it's because he's taken the census. He takes the census and God says, I'm going to punish you. There's now going to be, now choose your catastrophe. Thank you very much. Um, and so, and that's typical of the order in which events take place um, in scripture. Um, that is, God says, I'm going to do something. Then God says it. Uh, then God does it. Then God says, you see, I did it. But that's very different than in its dynamic from a catastrophe happening uh, and then somebody saying, oh, that was the work of God as an act of punishment because of all your faggots or something of that kind. Um, when you're, if a prophet says something's going to happen and then it happens, then, well, that's a, story, that's a reason for starting to be open to the possibility that this person truly spoke a prophetic word. If they speak a word after the thing has happened, it doesn't count as a prophetic word. If something happens uh, and um, you wonder what caused it, then the situation is more like the story about the Tower of Siloam, um, which comes somewhere in Luke's Gospel, I think. Pardon? 
Oh, I thought you were telling me what chapter. Somebody tell me what chapter. Somebody will get it quick. Uh, where? What's the question? Which cha- Where do you get the story about the Tower of Siloam? Sorry? Luke Thank you, Luke 13. Well, I've got the right gospel. That wasn't bad for an Old Testament guy, was it? <laughs> <laughs> where you've got a situation quite like that, where there's a catastrophe and somebody wants to know who, what, what, what caused it. When some um, people asked Jesus, uh, is there, there have been some Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. In other words, Pilate had them killed while they were worshipping. Uh, and Jesus asked these people, uh, asked the people who were talking about it, do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way, they were worse sinners than all other Galileans? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. Or those 18 who were killed when that tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think they were worse offenders than all the others living in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish just as they did. Unless you had a prophet ahead of time say, uh, there's a a tower about to fall on some wicked guys in Siloam, crash, you see, they must have been wicked, mustn't they? (laughs) Unless you've got that going on, if the tower simply falls, nobody's entitled to say afterwards, oh, it's because they were sinners. But the spiritual message is, just make sure you repent, in case you perish as well. That's man of God, prophet Narvi. Uh, nobody knows the original meaning of the word Narvi, which is the usual word for prophet. Uh, books will tell you learned things about it when somebody was called, or somebody who calls. Well, maybe it did etymologically, uh, but I haven't told you about the, the etymological fallacy, have I? The etymological fallacy is that you explain the meaning of a word by knowing its history. So the English word nice comes from the Latin word nescius, which means ignorant. So being nice means being ignorant. Not so much, actually. Knowing the origin of a word doesn't tell you its meaning. You discover its meaning from the way in which it's used in the context of sentences. So even if it's true that the word nabi comes from um, an, a, a, a Mesopotamian, an Akkadian word, that is something to do with calling, that doesn't tell you anything about its meaning in Israel unless you find that when it appears in the context of Hebrew sentences, it carries connotations to do with calling or something. And it doesn't. Nobody knows the original meaning of the word, but it can have various implications. If you look at the way that the word Narvi is used, then here are its implications. One is that prophesying suggests behaving in an odd way, uh, as in those stories about Saul um, uh, being caught up. Uh, into, in prophesying, where it looks as if prophesying is something like speaking in tongues. And that suggests a comparison with man of God. It also suggests a, a comparison with the behaviour of the Baal, the prophets of Baal, in 1 Kings 18, that story about uh, Elijah, um, where they are behaving in a rather exotic fashion in order to try to get Baal to uh, do his stuff. Interesting account of a prophetic community in the Elijah stories, you can apparently learn to be a prophet, um, which fits in with the way in which there's a prophetic group, at least, whom Saul fought in with, and there's a group of prophets, uh, of veiled prophets in 1918. You can learn to be a prophet. You probably, some of you, learned to speak in tongues. Uh, it's not something in which God necessarily simply does it straight from heaven. You can learn it. 
But more than the other words, in the books of Kings, the word Narvi suggests speaking words that allegedly come from God. And characteristically, they are words that are anything but, stra- anything but straightforward. So that 1 Kings 13 story and the 1 Kings 22 story about the 400 prophets um, uh, are words that um, uh, raise your eyebrows. The first prophet in Kings, first Nalvian Kings, is somebody who works for the king. Um, Nathan the prophet. And uh, compare again all those kings of 1 Kings 22 and also the national prophets, the, the prophets who work for the king, uh, amongst other ancient New Eastern peoples. And that might be part of the background to the fact that Amos doesn't want to be treated as a prophet. Prophet is not necessarily a good word. It's just really weird, because to us, prophet's a great word. But in certainly some contexts in the Old Testament, it looks as if it's a rather dubious word. It's a bit like the word evangelist in some, or certainly the word tele-evangelist. The word tele-evangelist, uh, at least in some circles. Later on, it does become the word, as it is for us, but be aware that in the context in which it's used in the Old Testament, it isn't necessarily um, a good word. And then the third word, or a pair of words, are the words Jose and Roe, uh, which are both participles from, from, ver- from verbs that mean to see, uh, and so um, translating them as seer uh, is uh, exactly right etymologically. Uh, for better or for worse. A prophet is somebody who can see things that other people can't see. The word doesn't come, I think the only place where the word comes uh, is in 2 Kings chapter 17 verse 13, uh, which is part of the, um, the explanation for why Yahweh lets the northern kingdom fall to the Assyrians. Um, that happens despite the fact that Yahweh has warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer. Seers are people who can see things that other people can't see. So seers are people who can see the world which is present but unseen. Uh, and there are uh, the stories uh, of that that we've already seen, the story of the um, 400 prophets where, where Micah has a vision of something that's going on in heaven, which he can see, but which, um, the, which other people around can't see. Uh, this is the point at which I ought to say something about that story that raised your eyebrows. Um, not least because here is God um, using deceit uh, as a means of bringing judgment. Uh, well, God, God, is, um, God will use all sorts of things to bring judgment. God will blind people. God will use deceit. Um, the, the king, as it were, can't complain because God's doing this is a reaction to the king's unwillingness to, to walk Yahweh's way and to seek Yahweh's will. Um, Micaiah is skillful, wise, like Nathan, uh, in the way that Nathan tries to get through to David, in that Micaiah, uh, first of all, gives the same message as all the other prophets. But the king knows that Micaiah is going to have something different to say. The king is torn apart, you see. He wants the kind of thing that these 400 prophets say to happen. 
But he knows they're only saying that because they think that's what he wants. That's what he wants them to say. And it is what he wants them to say, except that it isn't what he wants them to say if it's not true. Micaiah, first of all, agrees with them. I know you're not speaking the truth. That's not really what you want to say, says the king. Uh, and that, that um, gives Micah the, the easier opportunity to say the real truth in terms of this picture uh, of Yahweh on his throne with all the host of heaven, the army of heaven, the principalities and powers, the gods with the small g, standing beside him to the right <coughs> and the left. Um, and Yahweh looking for somebody who will entice Ahab so that he'll go forward for the of Gilead. And the spirit comes forward you could say a demon uh, but it's the word isn't demon it's, it's the word uh, it, like like the description of uh, the adversary as Yahweh's servant in the book of Job it's clear that this um, spirit is under Yahweh's control so it's Yahweh's servant I'm going to be a lying spirit in the mouth of all the prophets so my car is here giving a a theological explanation of why these 400 guys have all given a false message. Yahweh has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these prophets. Yahweh has decreed disaster for you. Um, somebody asks, asked, I can't see the question now, but, uh, but um, was, was the fact that did the fact that God kept warning people about what he was going to do mean that they could always repent? And yes, that's certainly true. That, that prophets, the point about prophets declaring what's going to happen is that it should be self-frustrating, is that it should not happen. Um, it's, it's up to the king whether or not he will respond uh, to Micaiah uh, or whether he will persist uh, on the uh, track that he's already on. Prophets then can see the present but unseen world, and they, they can see the visible but future world. So, for instance, that man of God in 1 Kings 13, uh, spectacularly, can declare what God is going to do. Um, don't believe the open theists who say that prophecy is impossible? It's apparently possible. Often seers uh, work in the service of the institution. Uh, that's true about Gad. Uh, for instance, um, and uh, the fact that it's true about Gad shows that it doesn't have to be to mean that you are a false prophet, a false seer, that you are saying untruths just because um, you are on the king's payroll. But the, the pressure always pushes you that way. Uh, Micah. Um, the sun shall go down upon the prophets, the day shall be black over them, the seers shall be disgraced, the diviners put to shame, they shall all cover their lips, for there is no answer from God. But as for me, I am filled with power, with the spirit of Yahweh, with justice and might, to declare to Jacob's his transgression to Israel to sin. Micah distinguishing, distinguishing himself from the seers, um, as Amos does in Amos, in Amos chapter 7. Man of God, prophet, seer. One of you asked, do prophets ever bring good news? Well, there's my answer at the bottom of the page. Prophets may bring good news or bad news, 
But if it's good news, they're probably not telling the truth. Because <laughs> <laughs> you don't need prophets. Pardon? Because you, you, you don't need prophets to bring good news. Well, except in one circumstance. The circumstance in which prophets, uh, prophet brings good news, the great example, is the prophecies in Isaiah 45. Because now the people are totally disillusioned and demoralized. And so God sends a prophet who will bring them good news. But note that what prophets are always doing is contradicting whatever people think. You don't need prophets to tell people that what they're thinking already is right. Um, so usually, in this story, Israel thinks that things are going to be okay. And, and the reason why there are prophets is to say, not so much. Um, in, uh, on the occasions when it, the Israelites think that everything is finished, then the prophet still comes with a contrary message um, to the one that they are inclined to believe. Um, a couple of minutes in which uh, you could talk to each other about whether you want to be a prophet <laughs> or whether you want to meet a prophet. Go on, do that. We're getting into two kings and into the period when the. I'm, I'm not holding my hand page 55, the prophets and the history of Ephraim and Judah. Um, you'll be reading two kings and then the beginning of Isaiah uh, for whatever day it's going to be, Wednesday. Oh, when we, yeah, we're going to do, don't forget, we're going to, we'll do dessert Wednesday night if you want to meet comments then you can do. Uh, and um, the, we come to the period then when the um, great powers, uh, originally Assyria, uh, starts taking an interest in uh, the area that is where we're interested in, uh, down here. Uh, and the key, the first key event you'll read about in this connection in Two Kings is the fall of Samaria which is the, there's Samaria and Jerusalem. The geography is just a little bit screwy. Jerusalem isn't really that far south. Um, but, uh, uh, the, uh, but at least you can see that, that there are two separate capitals uh, for the two separate nations of um, uh, Ephraim and Judah. Uh, the, the Assyrians are immediately more interested in, in the northern kingdom um, which is more um, on the trade routes and is, ne and is nearer to them, um, whereas Judah, and particularly Jerusalem, uh, is up in the mountains um, and is out of the way and is able... Jerusalem is in a position to be like, a bit like Saul hiding in the baggage. Uh, and uh, it's wise when it carries on doing that. If it, uh, uh, when it rebels, it sometimes gets away with things that other places don't get. So in the latter part of Two Kings, you'll be reading about how King Sennacherib, the Assyrian king, having um, uh, destroyed uh, the northern kingdom, eventually does invade Judah uh, and uh, conquers all the cities in Judah except Jerusalem. And one of the reasons is the fact that Jerusalem is in a stupid place on top of the mountains, which is really a clever place. David was cleverer than, he real than maybe he realized in putting his capital uh, on the top of the mountains. Uh, on this sheet, then, you've got on the left-hand side of the foreign powers. Um, the, in the background, first is Egypt under King Shishak, uh, and then Syria, uh, a significant local regional power. 
uh, but further down, Assyria, and then Babylon, and then Persia. You've got a list of the kings of Ephraim, and a list of the kings of Judah. Um, uh, if you add up the reigns of those kings, you find that the total number is far too many that will fit in the number of years available. <laughs> uh, and the reason for that in some shape or form likely is that uh, kings uh, quite often appointed their son as co-king uh, before they died as a way of trying to ensure the uh, succession. And when they did that, the next king's reign was counted from the time when he was co-king with his father. Uh, and so, uh, although we don't always know precisely how to make those numbers work, that's, that's, the, that's one key, that's the biggest key principle for understanding how it can be that those kings that reign for as long as they did use the number of years that's far more than the number of years that are available. Um, in the, 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 other, the other thing that complicates the, the reigns of kings, I can express in these terms, when was the first year of Queen Elizabeth II on the throne of Britain? Her father died on February the something, 1952. Uh, she was enthroned on June the something, 1953. So what's her first year, February 52 to February 53? Or what's her first year, 1952? Or what's her first year, 1953? Because that was the year in which she was enthroned. Or what's her first year, June 1953 onwards from when she, from the time when she wasn't found. Well, I didn't tell you to do that. <laughs> so we started the current point. When you, okay. Oh, I think I've done with you anyway, so there. <laughs> but go put me off. Oh, yes. So um, uh, similar questions arise with the dating the um, ancient Near Eastern kings of the Israelite and Judean kings, too. And so that's the reason why some dates go a year out. People used to, usually to say that the fall of Jerusalem happened in 586. They're more inclined now to say it was 487. It was 587. Um, and the reason why dates in different books will be just one year out is often because they assume a different way of counting um, when the kings run stuff. In the middle column there, not the middle column, the third column, uh, there's a list of the prophets and the kings that they uh, lived in the same time as. And people over on me are packing their things into their bags as if the class was over. And so I'm going to say, all right then, if you want the class over, the class is over. <laughs>